Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Alien Crash Site. This is a speculative science fiction podcast from the Santa Fe Institute that frames contemporary space science within the narrative of Roadside Picnic. Roadside Picnic is a 70s Soviet science fiction classic that is set 13 years after an alien visitation has occurred on Earth. These apparently very sophisticated aliens made a short stop on our planet before heading elsewhere, and they left behind a variety of strange objects in their wake. These objects proved to be quite useful, but recovering them from the zones is no easy task. Brave stalkers who have entered these zones have lost limbs, they have fathered mutant children, they have died. As with every episode, I encourage our audience to read Roadside Picnic if you haven't, it's fantastic. Or if you're more of a film person, you can watch its gorgeous adaptation called Stalker by Andrei Tarkovsky. Each week we ask our guest to imagine an alien artifact that they would risk their lives to recover. And this week we bring Heather Graham into the zone. Heather is a researcher at NASA's Goddard Space Center. She is an organic geochemist, and in keeping with this podcast's alien theme, she is also an astrobiologist. Earlier this summer, she published two papers proposing two very cool and very different methods for life detection. We discuss both of those in this conversation. We discuss how easily fooled we can be when we are seeking past life by looking at the clues we have access to. We talk about the rigorous ways that space missions are managing contamination, the intersection of art and science, the difference between information and meaning, and we end with a discussion of Heather's ideal alien object, which would definitely change our understanding of life in the universe, so long as it's properly handled. So with that, let's gear up and head out. I am your hostess, Caitlin McShay. This is Alien Crash Site. Be careful as you navigate the dangers of the zone. Mind those mysterious piles of wildly redistributed elements, and please... Please do not eat anything you encounter along the way. Good morning, Heather. How are you? Good morning. How are you doing, Caitlin? <laughs> I am doing very well, though I'm not about to go camping, so I'm also a little jealous. <laughs> yeah, no, I know we've been trying to put this together for so long, and I'm so grateful I finally get to chat with you. <laughs> oh, me too. I have been really, really enthusiastic about some recent work that you've been doing, and given the fact that this podcast's premise is all about aliens, you're kind of the perfect guest. So yeah, even though the months have passed, it's still so much to discuss because these methods are so new. So And we still haven't found aliens. So there you I know, it. right? Yeah, exactly. We're still ahead of the curve. So just to, to give our audience a little bit of background, I had Cole Mathis on prior and we talked a little bit about assembly theory, which was something that you were a part of as well. And that's a kind of new, fun, immediately applicable method for life detection. But uh, actually, I think prior to that paper, you and Chris Kempes and Simon Levin and others published a piece about this new stoichiometric approach. And that one's really cool, too, because it incorporates an examination of the environment of the thingy dingy. And now stoichiometry is a big word, and maybe our audience doesn't know that. But fortunately, we are in very good hands because you were so good at communicating your science. And so I wonder if you would be willing to take a moment to explain what the stoichiometric approach to life detection is and why it's so cool. Sure, yeah. So stoichiometry is this big word that you might have learned in high school, but very likely forgot. And all it really is saying is the relative abundances of all of the elements in something. 
So a really common way to think about stoichiometry might be to think about life, which we know is primarily made up of just a few kinds of elements, kinds of atoms, and that's carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and phosphorus. And so you could look at anything and say what its stoichiometry is though, because it's made of a bunch of elef elements, elephants. <laughs> So like my iPhone has a very different elemental composition than I do. It's made of a bunch of strange metals, some of them quite rare. And then, you know, some bits and bobs of carbon and hydrogen and things like that, just like me. But those are just representing different elemental pools that go into the construction of some object. And just by the nature of the example I just gave, you can see how that can start to become a way that we could think about life is, you know, just elementally, what is it made of? We could think of going into the ocean and collecting a bunch of particles. And some of those particles might just be calcium carbonate that's precipitating out of the water column. And others of those particles would be cells. And so they would have carbon and nitrogen and phosphorus and all of these things. Whereas the calcium carbonate particle that you found would just be mostly calcium and, and some carbon and oxygen in there. So that's another example of life and its difference to abiotic things of the same size even. Where this gets tricky is when we start to think about using that same elemental relationship to think about agnostic biosignatures. And agnostic biosignatures is another kind of science buzzword that might not be familiar. And that's just a way of saying, looking for life that doesn't necessarily have the same chemical heritage as we do. It may or may not have some of the same elements, but it won't be related to life as we know it here on earth. And so you can start to look at accumulations of elements in environmental context and if you see deviations from that environmental context that look like it needed energy, that's a pretty good clue that you're looking at something that might be life. So for example, if we go back to the ocean example and we start looking at all of the elements that we know were dissolved in the ocean, and then we look at those two particles again, we're going to see that the cell is wildly out of equilibrium with the ocean. It represents this accumulation of all of these elements like carbon and nitrogen and phosphorus that don't represent their distribution in just bulk water. And so that gives us a clue that there was energy that went into making this particle that has a very different elemental composition than its environment, which in that case is the fluid of the ocean. Does that make sense? I think so. And I think that's basically the reason why it's so cool that you are also examining the fluid, so to speak, is because you, you see a distinction. If there is something lifelike, there's a clear distinction between the stuff that it's surrounded by. And that's kind of what this ratio evaluation is, is pointing to. Yes. Um, I wanted to ask you about your cell phone example, though, because so obviously I think when we're looking for life on other planets, we're looking for like teeny tiny, simple forms of life. We're not looking for, you know, very complex megafauna like ourselves, but we are a, a consequence of life and we built a bunch of weird things. And now we have these rare metals all over the planet. Everybody's got phones, et cetera. So yeah, I guess, how do you, since we don't know exactly what kind of elements exist in, in weird forms of life, how would we be able to distinguish between something like a life form and like a technology that that life form made? Or I guess if yeah. we found the technology, that would be a good sign. 
Yeah, so that's another example of just looking at the environment in context with some artifact that you have found, whether that artifact is living or not living. If it is something that comes from life, it likely is an accumulation of elements that wouldn't naturally occur. So the iPhone is another great example because you would probably never find this, this distribution of metals sitting on the surface of any beach or of any world without the intervention of life. The metals that are in my iPhone come from very different geologic materials that mm -hmm. don't generally arrive together on a landscape. If we think of how planets are formed from, you know, planetesimals coming together and there's all of these processes that are making rock on our planet, it's being generated down in the deep hot parts of the earth and then cooling on the surface. And then weathering is causing different kinds of minerals to show up in different places. We have a some good ideas about where those elements show up in those different rock types, those different minerals. And the iPhone represents a deviation from even those natural accumulations of metals that we would find in rock. Does that make sense as well? I think so. And I think it kind of points to like, what we're looking for always is anomaly, right? It's just, this yeah. is so weird. Why is this like this? And it seems like it's a clue to something like a higher order use of energy to produce something complex. Correct. Uh, which kind of which kind of brings us back to assembly, right? This idea that life makes very complicated things and it's good at it, but um, nothing yeah. else seems to be. So that's kind of interesting. You know, um, when I was, I think in my first year of grad school, I was taking an environmental geochemistry class um, and a paper that we read was from a 20, oh no, 2004 review by um, Clay and Gradell called Elemental Cycles, a status report on human or natural dominance. And what this paper was doing was talking about how we've taken all of these incredibly rare minerals and rare elements and we've put them in accumulations that are completely unnatural and in combinations that are completely unnatural. And their point in the paper was talking about pollution. Look at all these crazy metals that now are like in the ocean or, or on beaches or in landfills or in iPhones, places where they never would have been. And, you know, I'm not, I wasn't necessarily concerned with the same things as, as the paper or the group of people in, in that class, because I was looking at that and saying, wait a minute, just the mere accumulation of metals and elements in ways that they don't geologically co-occur is a sign of life. Millions of years from now, if humans don't exist anymore and alien astrobiologists come to earth, they're gonna find all of these crazy rare metals on the surface where they shouldn't be geologically. And they're gonna say, what crazy thing happened to drag up all of these rare elements and put them on the surface? And that, that right there would be an excellent biosignature for those alien astrobiologists, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. Who's to say that the aliens at Roadside Picnic weren't on some sort of a reconnaissance mission because they saw, I don't know, piles of weird things on earth. They're like, look at all that garbage, yeah. yeah. Yep, exactly. Wait, but so then you you bring up an interesting point. You say once life is eliminated from Earth, you'd find this strange distribution of elements. So it seems to me that this approach, does it assume that life no longer exists where we're looking? Is it like a past life? Or is it possible that extant life might exist as well? Given yeah. The, okay. So this is something you could use for both. You could look at a, a deposit in geology and say, wow, this doesn't you know, look like 
it would normally geologically occur. We do that in archaeology um, on our own planet. We look at um, distributions of, of charcoal. And when we see charcoal of certain kinds in the geologic record, we say, oh, that was probably from people having fires here, things yeah. like that. Yeah. I watch a lot of Time Team, in case you haven't been able to tell yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you could also use it for extant life, even extant life of an unknown chemical makeup. And so that goes back to that idea of the ocean, that if we had an idea of the elemental distribution in a fluid, in an ocean, whether it be here on earth or out on Enceladus, and then we could look at those particles and see, are they in equilibrium with their fluid or do they represent an energy input to bring all of those elements together? Then you, you could possibly be looking at a living organism, just one with a chemical makeup that you don't quite recognize. So mm -hmm. it's, an, it's a both. And so given the fact that you're dealing in, quote, agnostic biosignatures, and we have no idea, you know, geochemically what's going to emerge on strange alien worlds, what kinds of processes or what do you, what, yeah, what kind of dynamics are we looking for? What do you think is sort of the like baseline interesting life thing? Yeah, so that's interesting, you know, because all of these things do represent, especially if you're looking at, at for living life, not past life, right. all of these things represent cycles and reactions happening on possibly very small timescales. So this is something I even think about in the case of that imaginary ocean, the fact that we know that certain um, fluid chemistries have certain um, uh, uh, effects on, on living organisms that can change their size and their stoichiometry. If, you're, if your cell is in a really salty place and out of osmotic regulation, it will start to contract and, and offload proteins and things like that. So, so your fluid can have that interaction on, on the biology as well. And that's all something that has to be accounted for. This is Chris's job. <laughs> That's also thing that has to be accounted for in the mathematics of understanding what those elements should look like in their distribution relative to their environmental context. Okay, good. I'll uh, I'll make sure that Chris addresses this when I have him on in the near future. Uh oh, I'm getting myself. Yeah, right, now you're in trouble. No, I think this is really <laughs> clarifying, and yeah, I wonder. Obviously the tools that are needed to do this sort of approach exist on earth because there are a lot of weird places all over earth. Mm -hmm. Are we um, kind of looking for alien world proxies in, in, on the planet that we know contains life and is the methodology similar or would we have to adapt it in a, in a certain way to make it spacey? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really tricky area. You know, analog investigations are really common and people, you know, trek out to Atacama and say, look, isn't this Mars-like? Or, you know, grow off to Antarctica and say, look, isn't this Europa-like? And we test our instruments and, and we, we, you know, generate results and try to act as if we're testing other worlds. But the, the fact of the matter is no other planets have good analogs at home. You're always making trade-offs. The Atacama is hundreds of degrees hotter than the surface of Mars. And Antarctica has this inheritance of reduced carbon that may or may not be present on an ocean world like Enceladus or, or Europa. And so you have a wild 
completely different chemistry. It also has geology much closer to the surface than you do on an ocean world. So there's all of these trade-offs that you're making when you go to an analog site and try to act like you're doing science just like you do there. That doesn't mean those things aren't really useful um, because even when we're doing that work and, and pretending to be on another planet and exploring these limited ecosystems with these tools, there's always the possibility that we're really going to learn something about biology here on Earth. I, I think that there's a lot of value in exploring these marginal ecosystems, not only because it helps us understand really the true limits of life here on Earth, but it helps us understand possibilities for organisms that might be, and I know this is going to sound crazy, and, and it probably might be, and you know, somebody will probably tell me that, you know, there's, there's always the possibility that there's biology that we don't necessarily have the tools to understand. You know, this is going to get flagged immediately as shadow biosphere, and there's really strong reactions that some people have to that idea. But the fact of the matter is, when you're talking about a marginal ecosystem where very familiar forms of life could be outcompeted by something else, that's not impossible. And many of the tools that we're using in life detection to look for life are very dependent on very particular biochemical machinery right. um, that may or may not be common. I give this example to kind of give some context to recent results where there was a virus that people have been investigating for decades, but had a really hard time finding. And that's because it uses a base, a nucleobase that's ever so slightly different than ours. Everything, you know, is kind of puttering around with the same nucleobases in its genetic machinery. And this one virus uses something slightly different. That doesn't necessarily mean it's an alien or, um, or that, you know, it's necessarily not related to us, but it did make it very hard to look for because all of our tools for finding viruses were dependent on everything sharing that biochemistry. Does right. that kind of bring context to I think so are you are you referring to this news that a certain viral particle was seen to have a fifth base and of course no one was detecting the fifth base because we only have the four across the broad diversity of the one type of life that we have here on earth which is earth life correct yeah, it was crazy yeah, yeah. I think that's perfect there's this is good I want to talk to you about this because it's a big question for a lot of complex scientific endeavors but it's very, very hard to do essentially like quote controlled experiments when we are, when our life biases things, like just the fact that we are living is a bias upon the examination of potentially other living systems. And I'm not sure, actually, this is a good segue because I want to talk a little bit about uh, sample recovery and the fact that in some ways you're involved in missions that is very much like the stalkers getting strange things and bringing them back to the lab and analyzing them. So you're, you're involved in some of the sample core recovery from Mars, is that correct? I am, um, but not. Uh, I won't be looking at core material likely. I'm part of a group that's helping us understand the steps that we'll need to go through to kind of triage the core, figure out what is the basic components and if, they, if it's safe for it to go to general labs or if it needs to be kept in, in contained facilities. So, so I won't necessarily be doing some of the science. Okay. Well, at least I, I 
I don't have plans to right now, but you know, that could all change. I am involved in a couple other of sample return missions though as well. And these are uh, missions that have gone to small bodies. So OSIRIS-REx, which went to the asteroid Bennu and is bringing us back, oh, just a, an, a richness of materials from that asteroid. And then also a Japanese mission that went to a small body called Ryugu and that's the Hayabusa mission. And those materials were just returned to earth last year. Mm -hmm. The question that I want to ask is how do we ensure that samples collected by, stored by, returned to, and then analyzed by devices that are made by life aren't adulterated by that life? How can we be sure that what we see isn't ourselves or some yeah. like accidental particle of ourselves? You know what I mean? Yeah. So that gets back to, you know, really good control and pristine control of environmental context. So we like to brag that the OSIRIS-REx mission that went to Bennu um, to collect that asteroid material was the cleanest spacecraft to ever, ever leave Earth. And we put a lot of effort into cleaning it and also not just cleaning it, but understanding any contamination that would be there. So we're trying to forward look at any potential materials that we might find and understand if they came from us. So there was this really large contamination knowledge program that accompanied the, the building of that spacecraft and all the sampling apparatus on the spacecraft. So that's kind of how we, we work with that. And those are efforts that I think are really starting to, to become much more part of how we design and build spacecraft is really this understanding that we can't just say, well, we cleaned off all the parts that we know are from critters, we're good to go. No, we need to have a really good understanding of everything else that went with it. Because if we're thinking agnostically about biosignatures, all of that other stuff might just be a biosignature in the context of that body. Right, and it gets even more tricky. Like obviously you can, contain and clean to the best of our ability this device before it leaves earth but then it goes through like lower earth orbit which is just filled with our junk and then it lands you know i, I it's just a it's a very tricky question but that's okay i think yeah there's some really interesting and and fun ways that they've tried to combat that whole spectrum of contamination possibilities with the perseverance rover and i always get very excited about this and 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 science nerds out there will think this is great. We basically have control materials that we sent with the rover. So we have something called a drillable blank and it's a geologic material that we know what it is. We've got lots of rocks back home that we can do experiments on of the same material. And we sent a chunk of it with the rover so that it could do the exact same coring experiment it's doing on the Martian rock on this thing that we know what it is. This is something that doesn't get to happen very often with spaceflight instruments because that block that got sent with us represents a bunch of weight that didn't get to be rocket fuel, that didn't get to be another instrument, that didn't get to be, you know, a eight more wheels, I don't know. You know, it, it represents a big investment to send that material, but it's really necessary because now that's our standard. When that drillable blank tube gets back to earth, we'll be able to look and say like, what were all the effects of the trip there, the sampling operation and the trip back on that geologic material so we can backtrack all of those effects when we, when we look at the Martian rock as well. I see. So this accounts for what changes might occur 
from the process itself. And in that way, it's like a drilling control yes. because we can, yeah. we can compare it exactly to the same type of rock on earth and we can see how it's changed, if at all. Correct. Yeah. Okay. We're going to be able to look at that core and look at the rocks that we still have on earth that are the same kind and say, what changed in that radiation environment as it went through the atmosphere twice, <laughs> all right. of those things. So yeah, so that's some of the clever ways you can try and actually have a positive control for a, an experiment on another planet. No, that's wonderful. I, I wasn't familiar with that. And I, that, give, that gives me some comfort. <laughs> yes. And then in terms of like trade-off for payload, I think if our, you know, if the mission for Percy is to seek signs of past life, better to do it as controlled as, like, I think it's maybe a little more valuable than a flap of the right flyer or whatever, you know, the things yeah. that were included. <laughs> but I think that's, yeah, I didn't know about the drillable. Like, that's really, that's really great. Okay. So let me ask you another question about places to look. You mentioned Enceladus quite a bit. It seems to me that you, you might think that life is more likely on icy oceanic moon type places? Well, you know, the, the ocean worlds represent places where there's possibility for diverse chemistry. So when we think about habitability or where are we likely to find life, what you're really saying and what life's really taking advantage of is places where it's easy to do chemistry. So there's a solvent. So you you can move stuff around pretty easily. If something's in solid state, like, you know, rock, you're, you're waiting much longer for materials to move around. And all of that cycling is important for organisms. You also have what represent uh, interfaces between all of these different things, like rock water interfaces or places where diverse chemistry can happen. It gives you a place to deposit your waste and also access to that water that's bringing you elements that you as a biological organism might need. I have to say Cole had a really great example of why he liked the idea of Titan is because it has beaches. And I thought that was such a great example of all of these interfaces that we're talking about, which become places for diverse chemistry to happen. That kind of diverse chemistry is a lot slower and therefore a little bit harder to investigate on a place like Mars, where, where fluid is fairly ephemeral and mm -hmm. rare and the atmosphere is quite thin. So, so that's one reason why I think the ocean worlds are a great place to look. Just that diversity of environments that you can explore. Yeah. Or what strangeness happens at the edges. Like that's why the beaches is so kind of cool because you've got this interaction between different spaces. So yeah. So let's say all the money in the world able to build the machine that we need to do stoichiometry, but you only get to send it to one place. Where would you send it? Yeah, so I think stoichiometry as we currently as we currently envision it really does best suit an ocean world okay. and uh, and I would probably say Enceladus and one other reason that I would give for that choice over Europa, you know, there's, there's like these constant Europa versus Enceladus, you know, sort of arguments that happen. But the one thing that I would say there is we have a, um, a fair amount more backstory for the, for the Enceladus ocean. And so that makes it a little bit easier for us to design these experiments. Sometimes, you know, you go to the ocean world you have information on that is not necessarily the ocean world you want right <laughs> familiarity is nice what yeah. little we can get out of the universe is always really nice so let me ask how is it that someone finds themselves in this position like what motivated you to hunt aliens how did you get here yeah that's a that's an interesting question i think it's 
I have always been very curious about the process of life and what it does to things and and all of these many ways that we see it cropping up everywhere. You know, I grew up in the country and so I was kind of surrounded by nature and then, you know, I moved to cities and and you're never escaping it, right? There's crazy algae living on the side of the bricks of my house and all of these things. So just realizing the saturation of life on this planet really fascinated me. I I was also really interested in relationships between things. I, you know, I know I would have been so happy to live in the times of Linnaeus when biologists just sat around going, oh, that's related to that, you know, and <laughs> building taxonomy, because that's really compelling to me to understand all the ways that things are related. And I think when I, when I found out that fungus were kind of their own deal, um, that just blew my mind. And I've always just been really interested in understanding those connections. I love walking around and like finding plants that look the same and then trying to understand if they're even considered to be part of the family, their same families and where those divergences might've occurred. So yeah. I have this very, you know, macroscopic, you know, macro organismal approach to astrobiology, which I think isn't necessarily common. Um, but I think it's really served me because with larger organisms, we're able to really interrogate patterns and complexity signals in ways that we haven't quite refined for small organisms yet. And we've developed math to deconvolve some of those complex signals. And really, this is what I'm, is ecology, that is the business of ecology. And so having that ability to describe mathematically connections between organisms and what their effects on each other are in abundance space or, or diversity space is something that I've kind of brought into my chemistry now when we're thinking about chemical spaces that, you know, might have diverse molecules, but with relationships between all of them, networks of chemistries that we can look at with different kinds of things than just our eyes. Yeah, that seems a little more comprehensive than the sort of single living approach, which, you know, kind of predominated, I think, early astrobiology, or I don't even, I think astrobiology is early now, but who knows, you know? I was just going to say, yeah, astrobiology has this deep heritage of looking for weirder and weirder and weirder life. And that gets very singular since those are fairly non-diverse particular organisms that can even inherit that. And mm -hmm. so we've, you know, a lot of times astrobiology is getting pigeonholed into these really extreme places, but we can use the entirety of nature as these giant cycles as a way of also understanding astrobiology. Right. When we take this ecological perspective, you know, for instance, I step outside into nature, as you were just describing, and there are a million kind of overlapping networked living organisms that I, I exist within and I also commune with, but it seems like that's a consequence of, a, of complex life. So I wonder when we're looking for simple life, like what is the ecology of a very simple unicellular life? I don't know how to perceive of a unicellular, very simple life form ecologically. Yeah. And that's actually really hard space to interrogate. And, and that's one place in which microbial ecology hasn't quite been able to develop some of the same kinds of really general rules that we have been able to make 
with macroscopic organisms because we're we don't quite understand all of those relationships. I think one thing to remember is you know when you're looking at your average microbiology paper and you see you know these splashy diagrams of diversity and and you know all these millions of different colors in a pie chart. Microbiologists love pie charts. You're looking at taxonomic delineations that are actually fairly fuzzy and the number of species when within each of those taxa pie slices isn't quite known and is very much generated by our observations and assumptions based on what something looks like and what we think it eats so okay. it's a really coarse way of describing very diverse organisms and so without you know, some, some finer understanding, it makes it really hard to even understand groups of very small organisms and how they're working together. Indulge me for a second. This is going to sound a little nuts, but there is this podcast I was listening to by a historian who works with archaeologists, and he was describing assumptions we've made about human groups and that there's this idea that all of these certain people that we see together that all use the same pottery are part of the same culture. And this is the corded ware culture of, you know, early Bronze Age man and uh, across, you know, the steppes of, of Asia and into Europe. And so we make this assumption that they have the same culture just because they're using the same pottery, but that's not necessarily true. That's not how culture works. That's not how organisms work. You aren't defined by the kind of shampoo that you have or, or something like that. And he gives examples like that in this podcast that he did on the corded wear people. And I think that's something to remember when we're thinking about even unicellular things is often we're putting them into these bins that are entirely our design. It's just the same as if we dig up, you know, a grave from 5,000 years ago and say, oh, this person's from this group based entirely on something we found where they were buried. We're doing the same thing with microbiota by making assumptions about their metabolism and their grouping. Yeah, we need like a cognitive tabula rasa. Like we need to like kind of step outside of our own life for a bit if we're going to do this fairly. But that's why I think this agnostic approach is really valuable and yeah. could exist in other disciplines of science as well in meaningful ways. Yeah, um, I'm going to take your podcast example and kind of use that to transition into this larger theoretical question I have for you. So in terms of culture, I know that this podcast, you know, kind of rests in science fiction and literature as a, as a means for thinking through science. It seems like science also is an emergent cultural property from life as well. And when I first met you, I think I was giving you a ride to town and that's how I learned about the determination of azimuth. And so I'll say for our audience that Heather is an artist as well. And you wrote this fantastic play about the hidden figures in NASA before hidden figures was a film. And it, it was a rock opera, I should say. But so I wonder as a great science communicator who is artistically inclined, who thinks about culture in these ways, what do you think it is about the medium of art that makes science somewhat more accessible? How does art assist science, so to speak, in, in engaging? In yeah. I don't know how to frame the question, but I think you understand its foundation. Mm -hmm. There's a, a geneticist who had a great quote that I'm going to co-opt. His name is Rutherford, but he's not the old Rutherford. He's the new Rutherford. And he new said, um, science can tell us what objects are but they don't tell us what they mean. And I think that's really the business of art is what did these things mean? Um, what did it mean by our choices to go to the moon and who we sent to the moon and what we looked for and what we brought back? All of those 
decision points that we think of as science really are reflecting cultural values though. And by thinking about it in, in other mediums like rock opera, we're able to, to kind of dig into that why. Because every, every experiment represents some person's idea of importance. Right. And that investigation is a reflection of, of cultural values. So for instance, when something new happens, quite often science fiction takes a speculative position and specula speculation is a huge part of science as well. And I think it's often kind of like overlooked as a, as a component. And when you hear speculative fiction, sometimes you think dystopia, like post-apocalyptic, yeah. whatever, but hope is a form of speculation. And I feel like hope is this sort of motivating factor behind a lot of the scientific pursuits that exist in the world. And it is yeah. curious to think specifically, for instance, like in astrobiology, what does our determination to seek life elsewhere tell us about ourselves and our values? And yeah. it seems like there's this insatiable curiosity about life's meaning, meaning in the universe. Yeah. And, and it's just so really it's 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 a much deeper investigation when you think about it from that kind of cultural perspective. Yeah. And that's a space in which you're allowed to bring in your humanity a little bit. You know, if I do that in my science and start tinkering around a bit too much, well, then I'm being disingenuous about my data. Right. But if I'm doing it because I'm searching meaning, you know, in how I look at some event or some object, that's a very different intention about that activity. Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting you brought up speculative science fiction because, you know, that's, I think, long before I was a scientist, I was reading sci-fi. And I think that's another, even when you think about the, I, you know, I love the kind of new wave people, which always get pigeonholed as being all about disaster and dystopia. But I think it's important to remember that cataclysm is also where new things are created. Cataclysm <laughs> is a great example of a creative space. I don't know why I wanted to say that, but I just. No, that's true. Also just thinking about like past life, you know, you, let's say the planet was much older just before this, like big extermination right the yeah. <laughs> it's like our planet looked very different so many years ago that you would never guess that we would come about so yeah. there is this kind of like conflagration thing that happens when things are destroyed and then new things emerge so that makes sense cataclysm yeah, yeah no and life in the distant past was just as alien as life we're looking for on other worlds. If we were to go back in time, we, we might not even recognize it. It's, it was an entirely different planet, entirely different geologic space with yeah. different biological possibilities built into it. Yeah, the, the kind of set of available chemicals was so very different. Okay. I mean, eventually I have to ask you about the alien artifact, but before I do, let me ask you this. <laughs> Given, <laughs> which I'm like so excited to hear, do you have a sense as to how the world will react when we do find a, a form of alien life? Oh my God. Are you, are you a positive or pes like pessimistic? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I kind of feel like it's interesting. I feel like people are going to be like, yeah, right. Because there's been a number of, you know, methodological missteps along the way where there've been, you know, premature calls made about biosignatures or life. And so I think it, it leads people to be a little bit like, yeah, sure. You know, it's like the water on Mars thing, like, oh, you found water again, <laughs> you know. <woo>. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, or the, the great so, phosphine freak out of September, 2020. Yeah. yeah. Phosphine, ALH84001, Viking, you know, Viking. we've had We've had a bunch of these. And even if you think about geologic space, you know, we keep on pushing around 
weird stuff that we find in the Isua rocks, you know, like, oh, was life earlier or not? And I think, you know, maybe that's a little bit esoteric. So people don't necessarily care, but I think there will be, I think that science has some work to do to convince folks that, no, this time we mean it. But I think that the thing that's really important and something that science and science communicators really need to think about is how to get everyone comfortable with this idea of confidence, uncertainty, and probability windows. Because likely next time we say we think we found something, we're not going to be saying, here it is, it's green, it's got six legs. We're going to be saying something like, we're 80% sure that this signal couldn't arrive outside of life. So even if you think about molecular assembly, that is probability space that you're working with. You're saying like these, these molecules represent vanishingly small probabilities of being made by abiotic systems. And that's a space in which you can have very small uncertainties, but for most biosignature things that you might be talking to the public about, everything has air, everything has uncertainty, and you're going to yep. need to communicate what we know how certain we are we know it and what we still don't know and need to know to confirm this. And so I think there's there's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it's a it's a it's a reconfiguration of the way that people logically think because I think you know this I've always had this problem with uh is this thing alive is this thing not like that dichotomy could be somewhat dangerous because it, right. it's very easy to like make a categorical misstep. So to think about it in this sort of probability window as a as a spectrum or a continuum is more helpful, but it's very hard to point to this thing on a spectrum and say, for sure, this is life and therefore convince a broader audience. So yeah. it's it's about recalibrating the mindset of the audience, which is a much trickier cultural enterprise. Yeah. And, and I think getting people to understand that all of these tools that we're using for life detection are often very oblique to how we actually observe life. So molecular assembly does a great job, but how often do we go to a crowded arena with a mass spectrometer and say, look at all these weird molecules. There's definitely living things there. Like that's a totally. really opaque technique to use. Yeah. You know, it's, it's non-intuitive as a yeah. way to look for life. You wouldn't go to a parking lot with a mass spectrometer to see if there's something living there. So <laughs> Mars is a bit of a parking lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, and same with stoichiometry. It's like, you don't walk into a, a crowded stadium and start shoving people through a machine and sorting them by size. Right. Right. Yeah. But hey, the size seems to indicate something if you think about it in a in a much more broad sense. So that's great. Okay. So speaking of technology, let's do it. Heather, at the risk of imprisonment, great injury, even death, what object would you like to return mission from the zone and why? Okay. So I'm very excited about this imaginary alien technology that I really hope, I really hope they have developed because it would it would be greatly helpful for me. And this is something that I would like to call the nullifier. And it's it's something that it can be stored with an object or put on a surface and it it removes all of the signs of life. And this is not necessarily sterilization. It doesn't just kill things. It's not just deactivation, which is you know kind of what autoclaving does leaves behind the cell but makes it non-viable this is something that takes away all of the signs of life and and how it has affected that 
And I imagine our aliens might be using this to preserve certain parts or things of their ship okay. um, so from, from degradation. But I imagine, you know, for advanced folks like them, these are probably fairly disposable objects, you know, much like this is where I got the idea of the silica gel packets that come in. Yes. I was, I was sitting and eating one of my favorite Chinese snacks, which are these durian cookies called wife cakes. Um, and each one comes with its own tiny silica gel packet. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is what the aliens need. And why I think a nullifier would be so great is because, you know, I, I alluded to it earlier, we're living in a life saturated planet. And as deep as we dig and all of the places that we go, even when we're not finding life and there are places on earth that don't have life, we, we have this idea that life finds a way, but there are sterile regions of the planet. Even when we find these places, they have inherited the imprint of billions of years of life. It has radically changed the mineralogy on this planet. There's great work by Bob Hazen about this, about how once you have life, you change the kinds of minerals that arise. The chemistry of our ocean is something that, it, that bears the imprint of billions of years of, of biology living there. What the contents of our atmosphere are entirely regulated by the biota living here and, and have precipitated huge you know, cataclysmic events like the great oxidation event, right. you know, great for us, was an utter <laughs> of other kinds of microbiota that for which oxygen is you know very detrimental. Yeah. So so if if I wanted to think about a planet, if I wanted to get down into this environmental context and how do I see what something is in the context of its environment, you know, how do I deconvolve what is life by having this pristine idea of what not life is, I need to remove all of that history. And if the nullifier can do that for me and let me see what this material, what this fluid, what this surface would have been without all of that inheritance of life, then I can start really understanding what is life? What did it do to this? What is its history on this, on this landscape? I think okay. this is one of the really powerful things about Mars is that even if we don't find life, we're looking at a planet wildly different from our own because it doesn't bear all of that history and imprint of life. It's what just nature does on its own mm -hmm. um, without that interference. Right. And we're looking at Mars right now, but planetary life uh, you know, possibilities are much larger time scale. So I think this nullifier would kind of get you all the way to the very beginning of the planet uh, before it, its geology co-evolved with life. And yes. I think that's huge because, you know, obviously we frequently on this podcast, you are talking about looking for life in, in the universe, but really that also means that you're looking for lifelessness in the universe. Like we don't even yet have the capacity to point us to something and say, oh, there's no life there. We don't know, but the yeah. nullifier would be sort of like your drillable blank or whatever, sort of yeah. planetary control. Um, for at least like a foundational comparison, which is really cool. Exactly. Yeah. To even have that understanding of the not life is nearly impossible on this planet. Definitely. Even when we go to these sterile regions, even when they're we too proximal. Yeah. Okay. And, and when we go to the sterile regions, we're usually just looking at places that don't have life right now. <laughs> they're a vacant niche. That's right. I see. 
because life yeah. could be happening again, depending on the time scale, life could be happening there or some disaster might deoxygenate yeah. us once again. And yeah. Yeah. So how null it does the nullifier null? So for instance, could we go back to the pre-oxidation or would it just take us to this planet's current pre-life conditions? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I really hope, you know, it's like when you look on the silica gel packets and it's like, don't Do not eat, eat. And, and, you know, dispose of properly. And you're like, what is dispose of properly? And <laughs> garbage. <laughs> you know, I'm hoping that possibly the nullifier will also come with some sort of of, of guidance on, on how, how long does this effect last? What is the area of effect and, and how do I store it? How do I get rid of it so that I don't just, you know, put it in the landfill and it slowly, slowly, you know, sends the entire planet back in time. Um, so I'm really hoping that, that there's some, some clever packaging. I was going to say, it's got to be contained in some way. You've got to be able to get back to when life exists. Otherwise yeah, it would be like a terrible weapon. It, my hands disappear. Yeah. What is the rate at which the nullifier works? I, I think, I think I'm, I'm really going to have to look into this. It's kind of like, I remember actually looking up silica gel and, and like the MSDS and all of the stuff to like dispose of it when we get it in the lab. I was like, my God, they let the general public have this stuff. Like you know that the general public has eaten it because they had to add that warning, right? But no, what's funny, okay, so let's think about the nullifier in the context of the alien crash site. Maybe that's why the, the zone behaves so strangely. It's because this nullifier is like taking away all of the life slowly. And oh my it's, gosh, it's, it's never been like a reason for why the, the zone acts so weird, but maybe it's because this nullifier got uncontained and starts slowly stripping life back, you know? Oh my gosh, that's just sending... The that section of the earth back in time and yeah ooh, and how deep oh my gosh i really right, if you think about this. the fact you know i say at the risk of injury and death like if you're walking into a zone that's slowly eliminating life like that's very dangerous yeah <laughs> you're highly at risk okay yeah and so it's funny because what happens of course the stalkers either get these things and sell them on the black market or they bring them to this institute of extraterrestrial culture and that's so that the scientists can kind of analyze its material makeup and figure out its function. But what's interesting about this object is that I think the first order of business would be to build a container for it. Like we want to understand it and use it, but let's make sure that we don't die in the process. We're going to have a safety committee. <laughs> An emergency exactly. safety committee has to be formed to understand how to, how to safely transport and use this object, which could be a very powerful thing. I think something that really appeals to me about the nullifier too, is maybe it would be a way of like, what is life? <laughs> Not just its expression, but like, how do we even know? Right. And so back to this, like, is it life or not life? Like the nullifier would make that decision. If it persists, then it's not life. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh -oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, just think of the things you might not, you might find are not actually alive. Oh no. Right. Oh man. Talk about a paradigm shift. Um, of course you would disappear so you wouldn't be able to observe it. <laughs> Assuming we're alive. A brief glimpse into the past, it'll be worth it. Yeah. Uh, but I like that you have a sense, you would of course apply it towards this sort of investigation, but you say yeah. that the aliens probably use it just to make sure that their, you know, machines don't corrode. Yeah. I, you know, when I was thinking about what sort of artifact I would look for, uh, you know, I was thinking about time team and what they're always finding and you know when they dig and it's always really common on objects and junk there was this 
person who I saw an interview with an archaeologist and he was saying like the average pot in you know Bronze Age times lasted about a week and when you break it you know that's 52 pots and if it broke into 20 pieces that's 52 times 20 times 50 years that this um, civilization was here times 5,000 people in the village suddenly you've got a lot of pot shirts and you're in New Mexico like what do you find all the time pot shirts all the time. So like what would be that common object that you might actually find like am I gonna find their like you know super rare thing or am I just gonna find something that was used for preservation purposes and and storage or something like that and so that's why I thought maybe maybe if there was some really mundane use for the nullifier again that's that kind of like cultural window on some object like we would be like oh my god it destroys the signs of life and they'd be like yeah it's great for preserving stuff yeah it's like a de-ruster for whatever their alien <laughs> rust is yeah exactly it's a de and you're like that's a really mundane interpretation. <laughs> Wait, okay. So, but thinking about the pots, if you have the nullifier and it doesn't get contained and slowly our earth loses all signs of life because of the nullifier, what about non-living things that are the consequence of life? Like pots, do those disappear? They must, right? Or I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, that's that goes back to that kind of iPhone idea yeah. and the idea of artifacts as signs of life. You know, that that in and itself is a biosignature. So it would have to, so, okay. So don't necessarily have to be a critter. They can be the effect of the critter. A footprint is a biosignature. Aha, uh -huh, okay. So this isn't a life nullifier. This is a... Yes, it is, but it, that includes all of the consequences of yeah. life as well, even if those it's consequences aren't alive. All of those connections cool. back back into star stuff. <laughs> right, exactly. Star stuff. Yep. It's funny. I just before just as a conclusion, I was thinking about how this relates to the, the work that we were discussing, the stoichiometry. And I wonder if one day an, an intelligent alien species are going to find just like landfills of silica packets. And they're going to be like, hey, <laughs> not only was there life here, but there is intelligent life here. Because they're everywhere, you know they are. Yeah, 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 and that goes back to that idea of just elemental distribution and the way we've we've remodeled the planet by putting tons of rare things all together. Yeah, that's, that's a signal of our biology. Yeah, definitely. I love the nullifier. That is a. I love the inspiration for it. That something so mundane could have such huge impact. But in terms of like the scientific method. The nullifier would be awesome, would be totally awesome, as long as we could protect ourselves <laughs> from right? it. Yes, it could immediately be, be weaponized, but. <laughs> going to have to be an entire wing of the Institute devoted to studying the nullifier. I can't wait. Precisely, yep. And like a new PPE uh, engineering <laughs> thing. But no, the nullifier, excellent object. Thank you, Heather. And thank you for your time. I know that you're Absolutely. a very busy bee and you are about to enter into nature and observe life all around you but all i appreciate that you made some time for me first well, this is great thank you so much and thank you for reminding me about some great science fiction that i hadn't thought of in a really long time so yeah, well now you know what to bring on your trip <laughs> exactly yeah good we'll have a great time and we'll be in touch for science reasons thank you so much caitlin <laughs> bye heather thanks <laughs>